2: Again, and welcome back to Soft Rep Radio. I'm your host today, Steve Balistrieri. Joining me today, we have a very special guest already on the line with us, Mike Breuer, who is running for office in the state of Kentucky. And folks, he's he picked a tough one because he's going against a political machine, as we all know, he's running against Mitch McConnell. So we're going to talk about that. We'll get into that in just a little bit. But first, we want to welcome Mike to the podcast. And we're going to talk a little bit about his Marine Corps background because he was a a Marine Corps colonel. And we're going to talk about all of that. So, Mike, welcome very much. You're welcome here. Thank you for coming on with us. We hope your family is, is doing well with all this coronavirus stuff that's going around in the world today. Well, hey, Steve, thanks. First of all, thanks so much
1: for having me. Quick correction, Lieutenant Colonel, just don't want to give anyone oh, the okay. wrong idea. Yeah, a retired <laughs> lieutenant colonel, married to a retired Marine major. Her dad was a Marine. My dad is a Marine. Kind of a family sickness. So
2: uh. <laughs> Well, that's good, though. It's like, you, you know, you know, it runs in the family. And I'm, I'm sorry for giving you that extra promotion up to 06, although it probably would have been nice to get that in the retirement check.
1: Absolutely. That would have been fine. I'd take that. If you, can, if you could work on that,
2: Steve, that would be great. <laughs> you know, I did an interview not too long ago with uh, Lee Steinberg, the sports agent. And, I. Uh, yeah. you know, he was talking about how he works deals for guys. And I was like, I should have had you at my retirement board. And he goes, oh, right. I could have got you more money. <laughs> okay. you know, so let's talk a little bit about your Marine Corps experience, uh, you know, as a lieutenant colonel. You worked your way all the way up through the ranks. And uh, what was your favorite time? A lot of military officers, they they talk about when they were a company commander because they think that was the time they were most influenced by the troops. But did you have a specific time that you really enjoyed the most? Being a captain was the best.
1: And, you know, the the Marine Corps, you spend a long time as a captain, which, you know, I, I mean, I think from promotion. But it's the best, it's the best time. And and during that time, uh, you know, I'm an artillery guy. So during that time, for the most part, I was stationed in 29 Palms out in the Mojave. So a lot of shooting, obviously. I mean, it's a great place to be a tanker or a tracker or an artillery guy. But also during that time, uh, my battalion went to Mogadishu 92-93 for Restore Hope as a provisional rifle battalion. So we left our cannons behind and uh, hit the streets of uh, Mogadishu, December of 92. So definitely the most uh, transformative uh, experience in the best time. But it's funny you mentioned that people look back when I was working on the staff in Korea, we had, uh, when I was Lieutenant Colonel in 2000, 2002, we'd have lots of general officers come through. And I found that the easiest way to distract them was to throw out a couple, one to 50,000 maps and immediately they would revert captain days. So if you, want to, if you want to distract him, just throw a couple maps around and next thing you know, they'd have out protractors and things like that. <laughs> <There
2: you go. laughs> That's great. And in fact, you're talking about a small world. One of my good friends from the state of New Hampshire was in Mogadishu at the same time with the Marine Corps. So he might've served under you. That's great. I mean, uh, that was a rough time at that time when all that was going on and you know, then a couple of months later, we, we lost some good folks over there in the Mogan. And, uh, you know, one of my good friends was one of those guys that got killed on that uh, October afternoon there. But, you know, moving on, you retired from the Marines and you became a gentleman farmer. Tell us well, a little bit about that.
1: <laughs> There's nothing too gentlemanly about it, but yeah. Um, so <laughs> my, my wife my uh, wife and I met, we we're both on active duty. You know, you do what you do. You compare the book collection and record collection, stuff like that. And found out we both had a, a interest in agricultural state culture. So when I retired in 2005, she switched to the reserves, you know, kind of gave up her, you know, gave up. Her active career for, for us to come out here and be farmers, and we just kind of no prior experience. Uh, and you'll you probably spot a trend here, but uh, no prior experience, <laughs> and we just one day we were active duty, and we packed up the truck, and uh, someone called it uh, the reverse grapes of wrath, leaving Kentucky <laughs> or leaving California, and uh, driving with a truck full of uh, critters to Kentucky to start farming. So. Uh, yeah, we tried a bunch of stuff and we you know, we run a sustainable farm, so you got your, you know, chickens and pigs and stuff like that and some beef cattle, but uh we have all natural asparagus operation and it is in uh right now and all credit to my wife. She found out that it grows here and no one was selling it. And so we uh we feed the farm to table restaurants and farmers markets and things like that in the Lexington, Kentucky area.
2: You from Kentucky originally <laughs> or no, no, no,
1: no, not at all. I was born in Wisconsin, but we were always on the move. You know, well, you know how it military families, but uh, New York, New Jersey, and then Virginia, North Carolina, Oklahoma, two trips out to Fort Sill, a couple trips to California. So, and then all the overseas stuff. So uh, basically lived all over. And it it kind of matters, you know, to people in Kentucky. When I was running, when the uh, last year, 2019, we had a uh, gubernatorial race and I used to campaign with secretary and He used to put his hand on my shoulder while he was talking and talk about not needing carpetbaggers in Kentucky. And the whole time, time he'd be squeezing my shoulder knowing how deep under my skin that was. But, uh, you know, what I tell people here is that when me and my wife retired, the first time in our lives
2: we ever got to pick a place to live, we picked Kentucky. So that should mean something. There you go. And I know uh, from reading some of your bio, you also ran a, a weekly newspaper for a short time.
1: Farming isn't a cheap. Uh, isn't it oh, the old joke around here is how do you make a million bucks farming? And it start with two million. You know, most farmers farm because it's their passion, and and despite being retired, we still need uh, cash coming in. So uh, I had a wrote a strongly worded letter to the editor one time, and he appreciated my use of the semicolon, and and called me up and said, "Hey, you want to be a reporter?" And then two years later, he got fired spectacularly. And uh, they looked around for someone who was qualified to run the paper and they couldn't find anybody. They hired me. So I did that for three years. And I, I quit in 2012 because uh, I got a, a, a contracting gig in Afghanistan. So I actually gave up my newspaper biz to go. My wife, my wife went to Afghanistan in uh, 2009, 2010, and she came back and said, hey, dude, it's a crazy place. You got to go. And I was like, yeah, sure. And so I started looking around for a gig and uh,
2: finally ended up going over myself in 2012. Very well. Yeah, you know the one thing. Uh, speaking about local newspapers, if you want to know what's going on in town, start mm-hmm. writing for a local paper because I think that's when you learn more about what goes on in your own hometown. Because I did that. I mean, I did the military, and then I worked after I got hurt, and then they put me out to pasture. I was looking for something to do. I started doing contracting work because I was still good enough to do that. My wife and son finally got sick of talking to me on Skype, so. They yeah. Said, well, you went to school for this stuff. And I said, Yeah, but I've never done it. So I got a job for working for a local newspaper. And I learned more of what was going on in my own hometown from doing that than I probably would have ever learned in about 40 years. So and that's what journalism's supposed to be about. Because you're only telling the truth in the local papers. We know in some of the national ones, maybe not so much.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, it was but, uh you know. You go to every, and you know this then, is that people don't have time to go to school board and city council meetings and fire board, ambulance board, planning and zoning, all these organizations that really affect our day-to-day lives. And so when you're like particularly a rural journalist, you go to every single one of those. And I cannot tell you how many school board meetings I sat through, you know, thinking of different ways to kill myself, but all (laughs) of a sudden, you know, all of a sudden you hear something. And you're like, wait, wait a minute, <laughs> wait a minute, what did that guy just say? Yeah, I, I love the, I love the rural newspaper thing. And and plus, I mean, you cover elementary school prize presentations and then, you know, you got murders and arsons. And so yep. it, it's not because you're in the country, it, other than the fact that you're the only person reporting it. So it was, uh, it was a really exciting time and, and,
2: and I miss it,
1: uh, but uh, you know, it paid better. Going to Afghanistan
2: a lot better. Oh yeah, well make- oh, that that's a bit that is a fact. Newspapers don't pay very well. But let's bring you, to, you know the reason we're here is you're you're running for the Democratic Senate nomination in the state of Kentucky, and you're going against the machine there with Mitch McConnell, which is not going to be an easy task. I'm sure you. I'm preaching to the choir there, but you know uh, to your own credit, you have no political experience, which you know, for myself, I think that's wonderful. I think we have too many career politicians in there now. But what made you decide to actually go out there and throw your hat in the ring? Well,
1: right. just one, one quick thing. You know, uh, I think my high water mark as the editor of a newspaper was being called uh, both a damn Democrat and a damn Republican for the same editor, the same editorial. <laughs> so I was like, man, I've managed to piss everybody off with this one. So I, you know, it must have been good. <laughs> uh, that both the Democrat and Republican were accusing me of being of the other party, so I, I was like, "Okay, maybe I can uh, maybe I can quit this." But so you know, as 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 career military folks, really take our oath to defend the Constitution seriously, and seeing what's been happening in, in D.C. the last three years was growing increasingly hard. And and I think what it was for me was that I, you know I've seen McConnell suborning you know Congress to the executive branch. Uh, and and because he's a Senate majority leader, no matter what comes out of the House of Representatives, if he does not put it on the Senate floor for a vote, it doesn't get voted on. And so he said, I'm not going to put anything in front of the president that he won't sign. And he's subordinated the Congress to the president. And, and then, you know, they're packing the courts. You know, there's a guy here from Kentucky uh, who got appointed to a federal district bench last year and he was rated unqualified by the ABA. He'd never tried a case. He'd never second seated a case. He was had no prior judging experience. All of a sudden, he's a federal district court judge with a lifetime appointment, and now he's being elevated to uh, the circuit court in Washington. And I don't think he's any more experienced. The second highest court in the land, and this guy because he's just a McConnell flunky. So I, I saw this. You know the things that we learn in grade school civics classes: the separation. Of uh, powers, checks and balances. So it's all gone out the window. And, you know, Frank, we have a, we have a nice farm. We're very self sufficient. The easiest thing in the world to do, Steve, would be to push the gate shut and kind of watch the world slide into the ditch. I just couldn't do it. I couldn't, couldn't do it. And so, you know, McConnell was the single point of failure, I think, mm-hmm. in this system. I can't imagine that the founders ever imagined that one person would accumulate so much power that they could literally stop the wheels of, of government, any kind of progress. And so I said, all right, I'm going after him as you know, as someone who's been a teacher. Um, I taught at the uh, University of California. I also substitute teach in our local public schools uh, as a farmer and as a retired veteran. That cuts a pretty wide swath across the belly of Kentucky. And so there are a lot of people who don't like McConnell. I think his approval rating is about 35% in Kentucky. And so with, uh, you know, being who I am with my resume, I said, yeah, I can, I can talk to the people here, particularly being a rural journalist and editor, you know, you, you learn how to communicate your message without talking down to people and, and alienating people that you really want to have on your side. So uh, about a year ago, you know, my wife and
2: I had to sit down and said, all right, that's it. We're going after McConnell. Wow. <laughs> I mean, with no political experience, that's, that is like, Setting the bar pretty high, and how's the response been? You know that uh, in your local town. I, I know you. You said you live in—is it Stanford or Stanford? Stanford. I actually,
1: we live outside of Stanford in a uh, a little unincorporated area, unincorporated area called Chicken Bristle, and <laughs> our farm is the Chicken Bristle Farm. But you know, honestly, I had two fundraisers here last year for other candidates, and I could—I had more people come from surrounding counties than come. Come from my own county this is a pretty red spot not a lot of support here in Lincoln county but uh, the the response across the state has been has been fantastic actually
2: now is the the Democratic ticket is it is it kind of crowded in in Kentucky right now are there a lot of people vying for that democratic nomination well I'll
1: say this there are seven on the Republican side um <laughs> there, there wow. are six other Republicans. Yeah, this, McConnell is not well liked here in Kentucky, but there are t- actually 10 Democrats of whom, myself included, there are three who are actually serious. There are some people who spent their 500 bucks to file and have never surfaced since uh, filing their paperwork. So, but there's there's really three of us who are considered to be
2: front runners in this race for the Democratic primary. Excellent. I, I checked out your website because um, I'll I'll be completely honest, living in the Northeast, I'm not familiar with the, you know, the issues in the state of Kentucky. I'll, I'll freely admit that I, uh, I guess that's a, you know, that's a knock on me, but I had a, you know, check out your website, but you had a list of all the issues and positions and you didn't spare anything. You had a pretty complete platform um, is, you know, is, uh, have you been able to talk with people out on the street and get in their sense of how they feel about these?
1: Well, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, talk about, you know, when I, there, there are a lot of issues in Kentucky. The perception is that it's a, uh, you know, anti-abortion or pro-life state. So as you said, I've listed all my policies and my platform on, on my website, but here's what people say to me. They say, I disagree with you on issue X, but at least you're not lying to me. That's a pretty low bar for an elected official that that you can, you could win someone's vote just because you didn't look them in the eye and lie to them. Um, So yeah, I figure I have one shot at this Steve and that I wasn't going to triangulate or focus group or meanly mouth my way around the issues. I figured I'd just spill it all at one time. And then the the good thing about putting everything out there is, is that it really drives a lot of conversation. I've been hosting these every night at 7 PM. We go, we do a live stream. Uh, like last night, uh, one of our county Democratic parties uh, came on and for an, almost an hour, I fielded their questions, you know, live and it's great. And uh, if you want to provoke conversations, you know, you, you start by laying out your platform and then you let people take shots at it. And even with the pandemic, we've been doing this nightly live stream and getting some interesting people to come on, talk about what they do and to let the county parties come on and fire their questions at me. And,
2: yeah, that was going to be my next question is, you know, the pandemic, uh, you know, what's going on. Is that affecting? Obviously, it affects how many people you can see. But do you think it's going to affect you negatively or maybe positively uh, because you're getting the word out via the Web? I think it's I think it's positive. You're probably familiar with Andrew
1: Yang's campaign. Um, mm-hmm. When he shuttered his presidential campaign, a lot of his national staff uh, just towards Kentucky. You know, they'd never met me before. And they said, "Okay, this is the next most important race. This is the guy who can meet Mitch McConnell. And they just started driving to Kentucky. So I've got all these Yang gang. And of course, they all look like kids, you know, that feeling, the ups and everything. But uh, when the pandemic hit, they just switched gears seamlessly and said, "Okay, this is the way we're going to campaign now. And I mean, mean, to me, as a candidate, it was seamless. I know they're working their butts off behind the scene. So like we do this nightly live stream and we get between 1,000, 2,000 views which is pretty good from a guy sitting in the middle of his farm. You know, today I did I did four newspaper interviews and an uh, hour-long radio call-in show. So I've, I've been at this, you know, solid since 8 o'clock this morning. But I never would have done that if I was out driving around. Kentucky is a big state. It didn't take you eight hours to go from the northeast to the, northeast to the southwest. Most of it is just, uh, you know, green grass and white fences. So actually, as far as time management, this is actually more effective. And I think these uh, Yang kids who came to work for me are doing a fantastic job. I mean, they've they've just come up with, every week it's something different. All right, now we're going to do this. Now we're going to do this. And, you know, a nimble, they created a nimble
2: and dynamic organization that has been to my benefit. You know, one of the things that I, I was reading through your website, that I, I found pretty interesting was your uh, jobs through public infrastructure investments. And it talked about climate change. Could you... Uh, Tell our listeners a little bit about that. When people think of Kentucky, they probably
1: think of Appalachia and coal country, you know. And but there's eight Appalachian coal states. We have been left literally holding the bag environmentally and uh, and e- economically. Our our coal country is you know, there's a place out in in eastern Kentucky, Martin it's called Martin County, and you can't drink the water that comes out of the tap, and you can't bathe in the water that comes out of your pipes, and that comes from a coal sludge pond that broke its walls and ran into the creeks and rivers and into the aquifer. And so now the 20 years later you still can't drink the water. And so, you know, this is the way I look at it is that the, the coal coal country, first it was lumber, then it was coal. They built the engines of our nation. You know, they built the great cities, the railways, you know, the uh, the bridges that we have and now they're holding the bag. So what I'd like to do is have a have an an infrastructure program to put people to work because the the fastest way to and we're going to have to do this to come out of the pandemic uh, to get money into the economy is to put people to work. We've got we've got a crumbling infrastructure here in Kentucky. And this is this is the way I look at it is that that big projects like we built the interstate highway system as a part of our national security. You know, the the reason we had it is for for national security. And these bridges we have are literally falling down. The bridge between Covington, Kentucky and Cincinnati, Ohio is is literally falling down. Everyone says, who's going to pay for this? And 4% of our (coughs) gross domestic product crosses Mm -hmm. that bridge every year, that one bridge, just this one single (laughs) point of failure in the system. So I figured we make a national schedule of of key infrastructure. And instead of states fighting over who's going to, you know, having to go to Washington to beg for something, we make a national schedule and we build, repair, maintain repair and replace our key infrastructure on a schedule. We put people to work in good jobs, the prevailing wage, and we cut the middleman out. We don't make states fight over the crumbs in Washington. We take a bold step and say we have a national infrastructure plan, and we put people to work that way.
2: Outstanding. You know, one of the things I wanted to ask you, and you you mentioned it again on your website, was climate change. As as a farmer in you know the America's heartland, there out in Kentucky, yeah, I mean, uh, are you seeing the the effects of climate change in your farmland?
1: Definitely. I think, you know, the droughts are
2: worse. You know, the periods of dryness
1: are longer and worse and the periods Mm -hmm. of rain are are longer and worse. It's when you go out to southwestern Kentucky, it's really worse because, you know, you get down, uh, they call it the purchase and it's right up on the Mississippi River. It feels more like, say, Louisiana than Kentucky. You know, it's not like here where it's rolling hills down there. It is, you know, sultry and and, uh, rivery, but They've been going through these radical swings from uh, extended droughts into extended rains and flooding. And the, the sad part of it for me as a farmer is the loss of small farms and family farms. So what's happened is, is all these farms have been sold out and they've become part of mega farms, which tends towards monoculture not being good for the environment, et cetera. But uh, to me, I, I think that, uh, you know, that small farms and, and uh, family farms add to our food security, which is another part of our national security. But yeah, I've definitely seen that. And it'll also have invasive species out there. I mean, you know, they've got armadillos in southwest Kentucky now. I mean, that's, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't believe the first time I saw one dead by the side of the road, which is its natural state, as you probably know. But uh, <coughs> yeah, yeah I mean, we've got Asian carp, we've got armadillos and stuff. So it's all indicative of, of, you know, rapid advance of climate change. But you know what? If you're doing infrastructure, like what I like to do with Appalachia is turn it into a regional Green energy hub, right? So even if you don't believe in climate change, we have all these folks in Appalachia who are who are unemployed because of you know the, the, the decline in the coal industry. They are literally begging to be part of a green a green economy, and so we want to put them to work with solar and wind and turn you know Appalachia into a regional hub for energy. So even if you don't believe in climate change. You end up on the other end of it with good infrastructure and uh, renewable resources, and people have got jobs. So, you don't have to be a climate change believer. You know, of course, I believe it's severely, you know, mitigate our carbon footprint. But even if you don't buy that, you put people to work and you get renewable energy.
0: So, it's a win win.
2: I was also reading about your gun reform issue and uh, your stand on that. And I was wondering how that is playing out so far in Kentucky, because uh, I know a lot of our readers are very pro Second Amendment, and as you are, but yeah. you, you have a different idea on, you know, how we should go about gun reform. You want to talk a little bit about that? Well, I, you know, I'll,
1: I'll tell you, I, I don't know how it is. I know your experience really varies wildly from mine. I know you were in you know, that you were in special forces and then. But for me, my weapon was always kept in the armory and it didn't come out through that little tiny hole until I gave my ID card and a weapons card. I don't know, <laughs> maybe things were different in the group. But, but I mean, for me, if, if we handle weapons like that in the military, and you know, the ammo was kept miles away in a bunker behind a fence. So, the way I look at it is, is that if we handle weapons like that in the military, we treat it that seriously when people are at the height of their weapon handling and safe, you know, weapons handling capability and safety awareness. I mean, the least we can do is universal background checks. I mean, that's the least we mm-hmm. can do. If you're a gun owner, I'm sure you probably use the NICS system. When I have, it was literally instantaneous. You know, you know, I walked in, gave my driver's license, gave my social security number, paid my 12 bucks, and a couple minutes later, okay, you're good. And so, uh, you know, the fact that you can, uh, we, had a, we had a kid here uh, who was running, an uh, 18-year-old who was running uh, for uh, um, state house, I guess. And he, you know, he videoed himself going to a flea market and buying an AR. And no ID, no questions asked, no nothing. He walked in, plunked down his whatever it was, 600 bucks, and walked out with an AR. And so, you know, the point he was making is that he could have been anybody. So, yeah, I believe in, in, in the Nash, in using the Nick system and uh, I know it's a misnomer—the gun, you know, gun show loophole. But I think for every transfer of firearms, we should use a NICS. Just and also there are some decent red flag laws. You know, one of the first bills that Mitch McConnell put in front of Donald Trump was one stopping disconnecting Social Security Administration from the FBI with the NICS system, because when somebody goes into custodial care, like they can't have a checkbook or an ATM card or take care of themselves. They get Social Security. Well, Social Security would tell the FBI, "Hey, this person isn't allowed to have a checkbook or an ATM card anymore." But they felt it was really important for them to be able to buy a gun. If they, you know, if they went into custodial care. This is this is literally probably the third piece of legislation that uh, that McConnell put in front of them. So it doesn't make sense. And, and the, no, way the, the way I look at it, the way I look at is that if you do not participate in the dialogue, someone is going to is going to change things for you. And I wish that it wasn't such a zero sum game between you know people who consider themselves to be pro-gun. I don't think they've been well represented by the NRA. I, you know, I think the organization has changed so much over the decades that when all of a sudden the dialogue stops, then something bad's gonna happen. And, and, and I, wish that the, I wish that there was more of a, uh, a meaningful dialogue about how we're gonna stop tragedies from happening other than my cold dead fingers that's a pretty absolutist stance on it. And, uh, so yeah. And, 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 so the two, the two ones that I, I absolutely agree with are, are some red flag laws and making
2: sure we use the NICS system the way it was intended. Okay. Well now let's move on to criminal justice. I, uh, you know, like I said, you have a platform on everything. So, you know, uh, I was reading all of this stuff and I, I like this about, you know, about nonviolent offenders and, uh, Talk to us about, you know, your status. Well,
1: I'll tell you one thing that always kind of struck me is the people who say, well, you know, I'm a fiscal conservative. I'm socially moderate, but I'm a fiscal conservative. And I always want to talk to them about putting people in jail. Right. So, you know, we put someone in jail who is a nonviolent offender, not a threat to themselves or anybody else. At the cost of the taxpayers of here in Kentucky, like one hundred and twenty seven bucks a day you know, I'm not smart enough to do the math in my head, but you know, what is 22,000? So taxpayers are paying $22,000 a year to keep somebody in jail and they're not out having a job. They're not paying taxes or kicking into social security and their families are probably going to need some kind of public assistance. So we put, we put a nonviolent offender in jail, really someone who's not a threat to society or themselves. And it ends up just being a giant sink for the taxpayers. And here in Kentucky, For example, like, and when when we really, really ramped up law enforcement, and we switched over to private prisons, the number of women incarcerated in Kentucky went up 300% in seven years. That's Mm -hmm. just because it's a business. There's no, there has not been a huge, uh, you know, woman crime spree in Kentucky. It was just, we need to put more people in jail. And so I I really don't like the idea of for-profit prisons at all. You know, I was listening to an interview with Don Bradley on your show. And what happened to him in the criminal justice system, he was a person with some wherewithal. I mean, of course, he had to sell his home. I think he had to dissolve his business to protect himself. But there's an awful lot of people who would just be a victim of that that same system. And, uh, you know, my heart went out to him. And I really hope for the very very best for him in that case that's coming up. I guess it's coming up next month. People with less wherewithal who get caught in that system and they come out, they have a record, can't vote, they don't have the driver's license, they don't have a driver's license, they can't get a bank account. Can't get a bank account, can't get a job, and they end up in a cash back in a cash economy, which is usually means crime, and they end up going right back to prison. And it's a uh, it's a vicious cycle. And I just like to break it by minimizing the number of people, putting bad, bad people in jail, absolutely. But if for, you know, even here in Kentucky, somebody if they can't make they get arrested for drunk driving, right? You shouldn't be drunk driving, but you also shouldn't have to sit in jail for 30 days waiting to see a judge at the taxpayer's expense. It's it's dumb. You know, so I think we can do a lot to ensure that we're putting the right people in jail and keeping people
2: who really aren't a threat to other people on the street. I also saw you You support removing marijuana from the schedule of controlled drugs. I know in, in my state we've done that. And, you know, now it's it's actually legal to. uh possess and they actually have some that are like a prescription marijuana shops and they have some that are now recreational and um, it's cut down a lot on uh, on a lot of arrests around here and it's cut a lot of the crime out because the marijuana dealers are all going out of business right you know,
1: and i think uh, i mean i think we're both adult enough to understand that people self-medicate you know, one way or another, whether it's, you know, whatever, whatever it is, whether, you know, whether you have a cocktail or a couple of beers or eating handfuls of uh, oxycodone or something, you know, people self-medicate. When I was in, when I was in Somalia in, in, in 92, 93, right? Okay. People are literally starving to death. There's no food. There's no water. There's no medicine. There's no nothing. But every single day, they would fly in plane loads of cot. So there's people, right? So while it made the hunger go away it made the fear go away it made it made life at least for the couple hours you were chewing it a little bit better that's when i kind of realized that you know here here are people with absolutely i, I mean you call it less than nothing if you're living under a you know plastic sheet you can still scrape enough money together to, to buy some drugs so I, I mean i accept the fact that people self-medicate i'd much rather see someone smoking some weed than you know, taking an you know an opiate, and plus the way I look at it is that people who smoke pot, they they don't go out and stick up liquor stores. They might you know shoplift a bag of Cheetos, but you know, they're, not known, they're not known for
2: violent crime sprees. Yeah, uh, that's very true. I mean, they they might be more apt to clean the house, <laughs> you know? But yeah, people that smoke weed are not generally the violent type, you know. I, I know I'm kind of painting with a broad brush there, but let's call it what it is. I think people are much more violent if they're doing some other <laughs> illegal substances than smoking a little weed. So, And, yeah. and so far in, in my state up here in Massachusetts, it hasn't been an issue. I, maybe I'm speaking too soon, but you know, we haven't had issues with that. So I was always against marijuana uh, being legalized, but I'm kind of changing my tune on that. So I, I'm totally in, in uh and step with you there.
1: When I'm on the campaign trail out in rural places, Kentucky, which are you know pretty conservative places, and people always ask about the marijuana question, and it can get a little bit tense. And I, I tell them, I say, I guarantee you, within a mile of here, someone is growing some really, really <laughs> good weed, and there are a lot of people smoking <laughs> it. And all of a sudden, do you see these smiles going across the room? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I know that guy, right? And yeah.
2: <laughs> So, uh, uh, that's very true. I mean, and no matter where you go, I mean, any part of the country, it, it's weird. I mean, no matter where you go, I was visiting some relatives like that live way out in the country. As we're sitting there, we're out on their back deck. You know, you, that familiar smell <laughs> starts coming and it's coming through the woods. And I was like, you have neighbors back there? And he's like, yeah, I think he's grown a little something back. <laughs> yeah. No. But hey, uh, I mean... It, it is what it is. But moving on, I mean, uh, I agree with you on your foreign policy. And, you know, you spoke as a Marine, I, you know, and as an Army, uh, the face of the um, the American people shouldn't be our military. I think it should be our diplomats. And, uh, you know, let's let's talk a little bit about your uh, foreign policy, because I, I found this very interesting as well.
1: You know, I agree with uh, General Mattis. You know, he was trying to coach the president— through the idea of, you know, having and employing the State Department, he said, I'll paraphrase, he said something along the lines of, if you do not full the State Department, you're going to ultimately end up buying me more bullets. And he didn't mean that in a good way. And, you know, Mattis is a very thoughtful, intelligent guy. And, uh, you know, I have a lot of friends uh, in state, you know, because Marines and State Department work really closely. And so I two friends of mine actually retired out of the State Department, and they live here in Kentucky now. And they got a double retirement, both retired from the Army, and from the State Department. So they're doing okay. But, uh, you know, they've said that the career level staff, you know, the real professionals, the people who know it, you know, not political appointees to go be the ambassador to Liechtenstein or something, but, you know, the people who are grinding it out in, you know, in Chad and, and in, uh, Islamabad, places like that, places no one wants to go, they're fleeing the State Department and I don't know if how many drawdowns you went through but for, this is why I looked at it when I, I went through a couple of drawdowns in the military is like the really best you know the old people say I can ride this out until my retirement and but the young people who can go do something else say well all right sure I'll take this you know I'll take this buyout I'll go do something else and you're kind of left with not the top in you know not, not the not the top wanted people stick around because they can't do you know, they perceive themselves not being able to do something else. So what, what has happened to state is the very, very best career professionals have left. And it's going to take us decades and decades to, to build that back up, just like it takes decades to build up. You know, we can go out in privates, but it takes years to make a corporal, a sergeant, a captain or a, or a good colonel. And so even though you lose those people and you say, well, they can be replaced, they really can't be replaced. Not not immediately. And so I'm, I'm really sorry what's happened to the State Department. And, uh, you know, I, I, I try to avoid talking to military terms on the campaign trail, but I talk about the dime model and say, so, you know, we have four elements of national power and the military in my mind should, should be the last. And I think you guys as operators, I, I, you know, my personal opinion is I think you've been, you've been overused and, over, and spread too thin because you're there, you're ready to go. I'm not saying it's an easy decision, but when you've got an asset like, you know, like, like your group, you could just literally, literally pull the trigger and off they go. And so I, I wish that we weren't using our military as the first base overseas. You know, I was I was working in Djibouti in 2016, 2017 on a construction job over there. And I may have left that out, but I was <laughs> I was working at that. Have you been
2: to Camp Lemonnier? No, I've never been there. I, I was just reading about that yesterday, though.
1: Oh Man, they built inside of that camp, they built a uh, special forces base. So that's when I was working inside inside that camp. It was incredible. I mean, (laughs) I've never seen anything like this in my life. But so what the Chinese are doing is, I mean, the Chinese built this massive cargo freight handling facility and they hire all the local people to work there. They hired them the construction, the operation, and now they're building a railway between Djibouti and, and Addis, you know, this Djibouti Ethiopian Railroad again, employing local people and they're giving them something, you know, and we keep our soldiers and sailors and airman marine, you know, penned up like dogs at Camp Le Manier. And meanwhile, the Chinese are out spending money and mixing. In. And so they're using their economic power to influence what's going on there. And it's, it's, it's soft power, but it's power. It's something that, we, that I think we should pay more attention to.
2: Yeah, I totally agree. You know, when you're looking at, especially the issues that Africa is facing today, and if you get elected, this is something, you know, you're going to have to be dealing with. I mean, there's so many problems right now. and and, and, I mean, the first instinct is to take on, obviously, the violence, because there's like al-Qaeda, ISIS, you know, Boko Haram, they're they're all... just running amok in the central part of uh, the Sahel and uh, now it's starting to drift toward West Africa. But the political situation and the economic situation really needs to be addressed because that addresses the problems at its core is why these people are able to get a foothold in this place. And I think that's the area in Africa that, you know, our our people really take a a hard look at. And you look at what the Chinese are doing because they're they're throwing boatloads of money everywhere.
1: Right. And and you know, it's 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 just a different and, and I guess my encouragement would always be we need to employ all elements of national power, not just not just military. And and you know, of course, we've been in in, in wars mm. now for it was 17 years. And mm. so it's it's gotta become the way we do business. But I'm sure you, like I liked going on training missions. I did a med float back in late 80s, and I mean, working with the NATO allies uh, work with some North Africans, and uh, I think e- even that aspect of of military life. I don't even know if people do that anymore, do those kind of training missions anymore. But those were, for me, they were good relationship building exercises, and yeah, you, you come away learning something, come away with a, you know a couple cool souvenirs, and and you you work on your interoperability, and uh, you learn to trust each other. So I, you know, I. You know, I don't want to say let's go back to the good old days, but uh, there's a lot to be said for for diplomacy and for cooperation
2: with our allies. Absolutely, you know, and it was funny because a couple of times when I was in special forces, we would be tasked to go on some humanitarian missions in Central and South America. You really see where you know just a little bit of aid in the right places can make a huge difference in people's lives, and they don't forget that. Those were some of the fun missions. You know, it's not like the high speed, you know, Johnny Rambo type of stuff, but it's things where we can make a difference in other people's lives. I think that's something like you said, it's not just a military solution. I think, you know, we need everybody involved in that economically, politically, and hopefully uh, you can make a difference doing that. Yeah, me too. Yeah.
1: I went on one of those missions in, in, in Tunisia uh, we went in. We did a—I uh, guess they call them med caps, where you come in, you set up a medical clinic yep. and dental clinic and things like that. We did that for five days, and when it was done, the government said, "Yeah, now get out." <laughs> <And that was> <laughs> <it>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all
2: right, thank you for your service. <laughs> yeah, we dropped some leaflets in South America and Central America, and you know, uh, in in these mountain-like, tiny little villages and. You know, we were going to bring in doctors, dentists, some veterinarians, and, you know, we we let the people know. We expected maybe, you know, 1,500 people show up because we only had a few of each. Well, the first day, we had like 10,000 people there. So, uh, (laughs) yeah. So, the the dentist was like, hey, Steve, go to uh, crash dental school? And I was like, sure. (laughs) He's like, like, we're not even going to bother trying, we don't have the time, you know, to to try to uh, fix anything. The teeth that are really, really bad, we're going to have one of the dentists, you know, put them through like a triage and he's going to identify the ones that just need to come out. And, and then I'll b- be pulling a tooth and you're going to assist me and then I'll assist you on one. And then you're on your own. Oh, so, yeah. oh. <laughs> so by the end wait, of wait. three days, I was like painless Pecos. I, uh, I had a big bucket full of teeth. I was going to make a necklace <laughs> out of <it. laughs> <laughs> and then the dentist was like no 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 so he took those away and he buried them but i was going to make a big you know tooth necklace i thought it would be a conversation right. starter going back to fort bragg but uh it, it didn't turn out that way so let me
1: just clarify steve we didn't have a prior history in amateur dent- dentistry before you <laughs> did this <laughs> it Was like a
2: hobby or anything for you was it no no I, I i used to when i was a kid i ran from the dentist i hated going but uh no, that was it. And then uh, yeah, it was uh, it was actually there was some comical stuff we'll we'll save for another time, Mike. Oh, man, yeah. <laughs> but uh, as you can imagine, I mean, you know when you go through like an hour and a half of dental school, I mean, you know, you don't really get all of that information you really need out there. <laughs> oh, golly. But anyway, I really want to thank you. We really appreciate your time. We want to wish you all the best. And before you go, is there a message you'd like to get out there to our listeners, to our voters out there? Because we do have some people tune in from the state of Kentucky. And, you know, is there something you would like to say and, and, uh, to all of the people out there before we cut this off? Particularly the Kentuckians, but everyone is that, that you know, particularly this group, people who,
1: who know, who, people who put their life on the line and who believe in bigger things than themselves. We need to put party aside. And ideology aside, and take a sober look at the direction the country's going. And I'm for going back to those things we learned in grade school civics. Checks and balances, balance of power, and and this country running the way it's supposed to. And so I just ask people to take a, you know, a sober assessment from their life experience and, and the way they know things are supposed to be and support the candidate, not the party of your choice. And I guess, Steve, that's that's it. But other than saying thanks for having me, it was a great opportunity. I would love to have a beer and tell war stories or you know, I don't have a lot of war stories, but, you know, sea stories, let's call them uh, with you and hear about the, the tooth necklace
2: at Lake. <laughs> that was never to be. I, I'm, that's like one of my regrets. I want, you know, because I figured I, I'm going to get off the plane. I'm going to have this big tooth necklace and people are going to say, what? the heck was going on in that trip but uh and unfortunately it was never to be but mike thank oh. you thank you once again very much we really appreciate your time and uh we thank you for your service uh, and for your wife's service as well to marine officers so uh and good luck with the farm and the election down there we hope to you know hear good things coming out of there uh who knows we might have a new senator in the state of kentucky well, it was absolutely my pleasure talking to you and your and, and your listeners, and this was great. And
1: uh, I was going to say the beauty of Sea Stories is is I get to tell the story about the the tooth necklaces if it's actually real, about the bad <laughs> Steve I know.
2: So, so, anyway,
1: anyway, You've been a great host, great questions, and, and I really uh, appreciate you
2: giving me this time. It's been fantastic. Thanks. Oh, thank you. So that'll wrap it up here for us this afternoon here on Soft Rep Radio. Soft Rep Radio, on time, on target. Stay tuned. We'll be back with some uh, other great guests in the very near future. But until then, make sure you check out the website. And thanks again to our uh, guest, Mike Groyer, uh, who's running for office in the state of Kentucky. We'll be back real soon.
1: You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter
0: at Soft Rep Radio.